Welcome to the Golden Age of Baseball with baseball legend Eddie Robinson, baseball's oldest living player. Eddie Robinson was an all-star first baseman, scout, coach, and front office executive during his amazing 65-year career in America's pastime. These podcasts will give the baseball enthusiast the opportunity to share a slice of baseball history with someone who actually lived it. You know, we did a podcast a while back about Eddie's trip to Japan to play in some exhibition games, followed by his and Betty's honeymoon trip around the world. The quality wasn't as good as we would have hoped, and some information was left out. So this podcast is a bit of a repeat of the earlier podcast, plus the rest of the information about his around-the-world trip. This is part one of two, and while there isn't a lot of baseball history, we think you'll find this podcast as interesting and entertaining as all the others. And now... Here's Eddie. I want to apologize to you guys for that bad podcast that the doggone computer acted up. I didn't know it was not doing the right way. And I dictated a lot of stuff. And when I went back and listened to it, there was some parts of it that was garbled and I didn't like it, but I I really didn't want to go back and do it all over again. I hope you were able to get the gist of what I was telling you. There was a bad part uh, that happened uh, in Japan, and I did go back and, and re-record that. And I'm going to use the, the another recorder, and hopefully it will do the right thing and uh, and be clear like uh, most of our past uh, podcasts have been. I tell you, I'm going to start. When we arrived in Tokyo, we left uh, Hawaii after having a wonderful time there. And uh, we landed, our plane landed in Guam to refuel with gas. And then we went on to Tokyo uh, non-stop, and uh, we landed there, and uh, they had a big parade from the airport to the hotel. We we checked into the Nakatsu Hotel, uh, one of the finest uh, and best hotels in Tokyo. We were going to play our first two games in uh, Tokyo Stadium against the Tokyo Giants. And uh, they had a pretty good team. And uh, there was a big celebration. And uh, before the game, they pre-game festivities on the field. We lined up down each line, and they introduced us one at a time. And it was just a big deal. They had uh, young girls out there with boxes of candy that they were giving away for the first American player who hit a home run, they were going to give him a motorcycle. That was a big deal. Motorcycles were pretty expensive, and if you didn't want to ride it, you could sure sell it when you got it back to the States. So we went into the game knowing that that Hank Sauer was hitting fourth the Chicago Cubs outfielder, and I was hitting fifth. Hank hit a home run, first time up. 
and he came around the bases and they met him at home plate with the motorcycle and there was a big to-do, big ceremony and they gave him the motorcycle. Well, I came up next after the ceremonies for his home run, I came up next and I hit a home run and I circled the bases and when I crossed home plate, one of those little girls that had been giving out the boxes of candy gave me a box of candy. All the players got a big kick out of that. How Sire hits the home run and gets a motorcycle and I hit the home run and get a box of candy. But uh, it was fun. It was a fun deal. We found out that uh, the, the Japanese players like to do everything like uh, they did it in the big leagues. But their fans weren't the same. They, their fans did not boo you, and they didn't yell at you, but they whistled at you. If you did something good, they would whistle, and if you did something bad, they'd whistle at you. And I, I thought that was really uh, so much different than the fans booing you and yelling at you in the, in the States. We were... We played our first two games in Tokyo, and then we went to Osaka and played a game, and then we came back and we went to Nagaya and played a game. Then then we'd been there about four days, uh, maybe five, and uh, we had a little road trip. They were splitting us up. The wives were going to a, a famous uh, resort area, and uh, and the team was going down to Hiroshima and Fukuoka. Hiroshima being the spot that the uh, they would drop the bomb, the atomic bomb on. And Fukuoka was another large city in Japan in the Japanese big league. So uh, the wives took off, and and they were going to this kind of spa area. It was noted for its cultured pearls. They they they, they had oysters there and they would put a seed in the oysters in, in in an oyster and drop it back in the water. And over time, I don't know how long, but maybe a couple of years, that oyster would develop a pearl where that uh, grain of sand had been put in and it's in, into the shell, it would develop a pearl. And they called those pearls cultured pearls. And the wives got to go out and see them do all that and and harvest the oysters and and, and take the pearls out of the oysters. And then there they had a couple little side trips that uh, to some very exotic, beautiful places. And they enjoyed it. And we went down and and played the first game in uh, Bukioka. We were playing the, on an on a, um, American uh, air base. It was not against the Japanese team. But uh, we were playing the Air Force air base team, and they had a pretty good team. They had a little umpire 
They had a little Japanese umpire at second base. And uh, during the game, uh, there was a man on second. Rizzuto and uh, Whitey Ford put the pickoff play on. And uh, they timed it perfectly. Uh, uh, Rizzuto broke from the bag and Ford came to a stop and whirled and threw the ball to second base. But he overthrew Rizzuto. He threw it over Rizzuto's head. Rizzuto didn't touch it. But the little Jap umpires intently, he's, he's got both hands on his knees and he's watching for that play at second base. And the ball hit him right in the top of the head, and he went down. It was it was sad, but it was a funny sight. And uh, he's he was down for a little bit, but he got back up and, and shook it off, and went on umpiring the game. Well, that night uh, we went back to our hotel that we were staying. It was a nice hotel. It had a nice cocktail lounge and. Uh, little dining room downstairs. And, and they were, the, the uh, officers of the base were giving us a little party. And uh, we, we got back to the hotel, took our uniforms off, showered and got dressed, and went back down to the party. Uh, there were a lot of officers and their wives there. And, uh, and of course, a lot of the ballplayers, not all the ballplayers came, but a lot of the ballplayers came. During the course of the evening, there was a, one of the girls at the, at the bar. She was being obnoxious and saying ugly things. And it was, uh, it was annoying. And, and I don't know, I guess I'd had a couple pops. And, and I told her to shut up. And uh, she didn't like that. And she yelled at me and we had a little dust up. It didn't amount to much, but. Everybody knew that uh, uh, she and I went at it a little bit there, uh, back and forth. Anyway, the party went on, and we ate, and and uh, the it, the party began to break up, and the players were drifting out and going home, and the officers and their wives were leaving. Finally, it got down to there were only three people, well, four people left at the bar. It was uh, the bartender was there, of course, and Whitey Ford and Billy Martin and I were still there. We're the last three. And we we're having a last nightcap. And Billy Martin came up with the idea, wouldn't it be fun to get all those guys back down here? And we said, yeah, but how are we going to do it? He said, "Well, let's fake a fight. Let's let's uh, let's get uh, Whitey on the phone. Phone. He's more believable than you or I, Eddie." And and he said, uh, "You and I will throw some chairs around and make a lot of noise, and and he'll call up these guys and tell them that you're in a fight with that woman's husband, and we need help." And uh, there are other officers here. We we decided we'd call Yogi first because if we got him, if we were able to convince him 
to come down and we got him on the phone. Then he could call all the other guys and and uh, it'd be easier to get them down. So we did. Uh, Martin and I made the noise through the chairs and tables around. Whitey got on the phone to Yogi and darn if he wasn't able to convince Yogi that we were in a fight and we needed help. So it wasn't two minutes till Yogi rounded the corner coming into the bar and, and barefooted, nothing but his pants on, no top, just just his pants. And he saw it what it was, that it was a practical joke. And he, he got a kick out of it. And we got him on the phone and he called all the players. And, and Bill Dickey, he called Bill Dickey, the coach. And Bill came down barefooted in his pants. And, but he didn't have a undershirt on. But uh, it was so much fun watching those guys as they turned the corner coming into the uh, bar. They were ready to fight. And seeing all of us standing there uh, laughing at them. But we got all the players down. They all came down except Bill Skyron and Bob Serve. They're the two guys that should have been there. And they're, they're the biggest, toughest guys in the bunch, and they didn't come. They wouldn't believe us. But anyway, that, that was it. I, I thought you might enjoy that joke. It was a pretty big practical joke. We moved on from there. The next day, we went to Hiroshima and checked into the hotel. And uh, when we landed in Hiroshima, it was uh, very interesting in that uh, everything looked new. It looked like a new shopping center. The buildings were all new and, and of the same age. And all the trees were the same height. Uh, the bomb had just devastated the whole city and they had built it back, and it did look like a shopping center. They had a museum there uh, of uh, articles that had been in the bomb, and they had some tiles, the roof tiles that are heated to terrific heat to make them make them into a tile. And and that bomb had been so hot that it had melted the tiles that you, like you put on roofs, they were melted together. And they had uh, coins that were in a bank and they were melted together. They were like one big paperweight, all connected, melted together. And pictures of the city. It was a very interesting museum. And uh, that's about all we did was go, we didn't go into the city. And and they wouldn't. We spent that night after the game. We spent that night uh, at the hotel, and they wouldn't let us out of the hotel. Uh, we were the first team of any kind to go into uh, the city uh, since the bombing, and the bombing had been ten years before. Uh, we spent the night in our hotel and uh, didn't go out. We. Uh, we got got a good poker game going on the mezzanine floor. It, there were seven of us in a game, and Charlie Silvera was there. He was 
kibitzing the game, just watching us play. And, and I guess we were a little bit noisy because the first thing we knew, here came this figure down the hallway. Uh, he had a, a nightcap on and he had a, a red gown, a red gown. Not pajamas, but a red gown. And he came and it was Casey Stingle. And it turns out we weren't making so much noise that we were keeping he and Edna awake. Anyway, Charlie Silvera looked up and he saw Stingle coming. And he said, oh, look, here comes Santa Claus. Everybody got a kick out of that, everybody but Stingle. And he came up and, and told us that we were making too much noise and he'd appreciate it if we'd tone it down a little bit, which we did. And that ended our little road trip. Next morning, we took a, a plane back to Tokyo and, our, and joined our wives again. Uh, they had had a good time, and uh, we, were, we were pleased that they'd been able to get off by themselves and, and, and enjoy some different things other than us playing a ball game every day. So... <clears throat> You know, that Nakatsu Hotel that we were staying in, it was a fine hotel, and, and they had a, sir, a massage service that uh, the uh, uh, girl or a lady uh, would come to your room, and uh, you'd take all your clothes off but your shorts, and... Uh, you lay on the bed and she gives you a, a body massage. And I'm telling you, that was great. I I had done it the trip before when I'd gone over there with Eddie Lopez All-Star. I'd gotten a massage every night. And uh, I got a massage. Betty and I got a couple of massages. And, and they, were, they were terrific. And a massage cost 5,000 yen. And uh, that sounds like a lot, but that turned out to be $5 American money. And uh, that was a difference in the value of the dollar. So it was a really good deal. You got a nice massage for $5. However, that was getting to the end of our trip. When we got back to Japan, we had, uh, uh, we played the Giants one more game in, in Tokyo. And the next day we left for Okinawa. And we were going to go to Okinawa and play one game. And the big group that was going back to New York uh, were leaving from Okinawa to go back. And then those of us who were going on around the world, uh, we started on our journey. We played the game and bid our friends goodbye uh, who were coming back to the States and we all went our separate ways. It it turned out that uh, Sue and Tommy Byrne, left-hand pitcher on the team, we, uh, we were both going to Hong Kong and we flew on the same plane and went to the Imperial Hotel in Hong Kong, which was the finest hotel there. First thing I that impressed me was they had drinking water and pitchers in every room. 
and they had these little pills that they they call halcyon pills, and you drop the pill in a glass of water, and it would purify the water. So we did that the whole time we were there, and uh, we had dinner together one night, and uh, I had some shark fin soup, and. Uh, I'd never heard of it, but it was very good. And I've never seen it anywhere in the United States, but shark fin soup was fine. We toured the islands, Hong Kong and the mainland. Hong Kong's really an island. And then there's the mainland Hong Kong. It's huge. And they have, you you can't imagine the number of, of uh, jewelry stores that they have. Then they have every jewelry store, if, if you walk down the street, has a guard sitting out front with a shotgun or a rifle. And he's sitting out in front of the, that particular jewelry store with a gun guarding the place. I don't know why they had it all, but every one of those jewelry stores had it. And shopping uh, was uh, it was the greatest shopping place in the world. Everything was cheap, and a lot of things were handmade. I I had Betty and I both had overcoats handmade. I had shirts handmade, and shoes. I had some shoes handmade, and Betty bought all kind of things. We had. To, the last day we were there, I think we were there five days, and the last day we were there, we spent most of the day boxing uh, clothes and things we had bought, and boxing it up and shipping it back to the United States. We didn't have room to carry it on our trip around the world. So we just put it securely in boxes, and we hired a young man to help us, And he did, and we got it all boxed up and shipped. Thank you for listening to the Golden Age of Baseball with baseball legend Eddie Robinson. If you have a question for Eddie or would like to suggest a topic, please email eddie.robinson65 at yahoo.com. And for an even deeper dive into the Golden Age of Baseball, read his autobiography, Lucky Me, My 65 Years in Baseball which you can find on goodreads.com and on Amazon. The Golden Age of Baseball with Eddie Robinson was produced by Greg Ricks. Mark Robinson is our technical advisor, and Abby Robinson is our podcast coordinator.